welcome to another episode of Drumversations, the podcast. I am Ruth Lomax. And I'm Mark Lomax. And we just wanted to hang with y'all and see how everyone's doing. Uh, this has been... Virtually, that is. Yeah, virtually. Not really virtually. We're hanging virtually. We want them to... Yeah, I guess you're right. It's like a conversation in our living room virtually. Except it's our basement. Except it's <laughs> our living basement room studio. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, um, lots been going on. Uh, I think that's going to be the the kind of way that we always start things. Um, just kind of doing a check of how everybody's doing. Um, also feel free to drop us a note on either iTunes or Spotify. We'd, we'd love to see your feedback. We'd love to see your comments. If there are things you want us to talk about, please share those ideas in the comments. So, and click like, and share. Absolutely. And also check out Mark on Friday drumversations at youtube.com backslash C f g multimedia.com and so what do you do on that oh see if no 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 i'm sorry that was Ooh. jacked up we got to edit that that's okay it's www.youtube.com backslash cfg multimedia it's super confusing if i found if you just google drumversations youtube you'll also find it or you can just google drumversations youtube and it comes right up so, Mark, last time we chatted, we talked a little bit about my experience as being um, African-American in a predominantly white education setting, K-12. I mean, we, we talked mostly about high school, high school but yeah. we talked a lot about what happened in my middle school years, a little bit of college. I wanted to ask you this week to talk and share about what happened um, to you during your collegiate career. And, I mean, if you want to talk a little bit about what your high school environment was like and how issues of race impacted you, um, and so if you wouldn't mind, I think I would love to spend some time just kind of sharing that story. Yeah, so just for context, we we uh, had a long conversation about this because I normally don't share personal things in that way. Never. Never. Um, but, you know, it, 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 continuing the conversation makes sense, right? Because I think your experiences uh, shine light, shined a light both on the experience uh, that some black women have in terms of shared experience, um, particularly in predominantly white spaces, but then as a black person in predominantly white spaces uh, who also happens to be a woman, right? Your blackness and your being a young lady at that time made for you know challenges that most don't have, whether you're male, female, not black, male, female, or a black male even. And, you know, so in that spirit, I, I share, um, but it's not the most comfortable thing. Just putting it out there. Yeah. And, and we, <laughs> I certainly appreciate the vulnerability um, that this story is going to have for I you. It's going to be vulnerable now. I mean, <laughs> and for a lot of people, I think they, 
and for even more context, I think people really see you as this intellectual, maybe intimidating, maybe harsh, very direct with your words. It's really getting personal now. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what we this is what we encourage you all to do. Um, even as you comment and share and click like, we want for folks to really have these conversations at home and in your network um, networks. Because I think there there's so much to unpack when you're looking at um, black identity and when you know when you see things posted, you might not understand why the folks that are posting are are sharing those those stories and why you know the, the vitriol is real right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and I think it is important um, for you to to share your side of the story. Again, if you're new to this podcast, Mark and I have been um, a couple for about 20 years and we've been married for 18. <laughs> remember last time she didn't remember so I, it's not that i good good no no yes. no 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 that's yes, not it's that's not even it's what document. happens you didn't know so anywho know, and i did so okay college that's a whole thing i'm gonna write a book about it and it's gonna be no holds barred and it's gonna hopefully be a new york times bestseller of potentially academic type smut because the the way I feel about that and I'm still healing. It just it was it was grimy that whole experience. And and, and I'll I'll elaborate a little bit. But I, I for the record, because you you shared so much about your experience, mine was opposite of yours. I grew up in, in South Linden and I went to black schools, public schools. So even opposite in the class context. Uh, and in the racialized context. It, the, we didn't really deal with white folk like that, except for the authority figures, right? I did have the benefit of two black male teachers, uh, Mr. Carrington in second grade and um, Mr. Carruthers in sixth grade. He was my sixth grade social studies teacher. And that's probably why I lecture stylistically the way I do, because he was like that in sixth grade. And I just found it, you know amazing and most of my other classmates were asleep and I was the only one sitting there like yeah it's crazy <laughs> that you had two black male teachers yeah and I had at, so at you know those were early grades second yeah, and six. second and six and then I had um Miss Branch in first grade she was black and I had Miss Locke in fifth grade she was black and then I didn't really have, well, I had like a black woodshop teacher, but I didn't really you have. woodshop? Heck yeah, and home ec. Oh, oh I had a black home ec teacher, Miss Duncan. Yeah, so shout out to Linden Elementary in Crestview. Everybody from Linden knows what's going on there. And we all had Mrs. Um, Duncan for home ec, but I cannot remember uh, the guy's name in Woodshop, but everybody who went to Crestview would know. Crestview folks, shout it out in the comments if you remember the <laughs> name of the Woodshop teacher that I just now am finding out you took Woodshop. I could never tell. That that <laughs> you was... could never tell. Oh, see? <laughs> Dogging me. Dogging me. Okay, anyway, so yes, I took Woodshop. And yes, when I need to be, I'm handy. But, you know... I was also told, if you don't want to fix stuff, you got to make enough money to get it fixed. 
So I haven't quite gotten there yet, but I don't always want to fix stuff. What's (laughs) interesting about that, I think a lot of black academic types Mm -hmm. suppress that ability to fix things because you were kind of, we're kind of socialized to think that that's a very blue collar kind of menial thing to be able to like be handy around the house. And I think that just like a lot of women who, and I might get some, some feedback about this, but I feel personally that, um, you know, you're taught to do all of these homemakery things, quote unquote. And for a lot of us that want it to be these successful professional professional Mm -hmm. types, we kind of shunned that because we were like, I'm never going to need to do that. Or, you know, and, and I wonder if, there's like something deep within our subconscious. I think maybe there's something to that, but in my case, there's not. I mean, in my case, honestly, I just grew up without a dad in the house. I didn't have anybody show me those things. And although my mom is handy, I really wasn't trying to hear that from her. I just, that wasn't time well spent to me, Yeah. you know? Um, But I went to black schools in middle school, elementary, I mean, middle school and elementary and high school. Um, and I had a lot of friends that I knew, but I didn't have any deep friendships, you know. Um, and the folks that I hung around might not see it that way, but that's how it felt. And they might not see it that way because, I mean, we are a close-knit group for a long time. I mean, there are people that I started kindergarten with that I ended high school with, you know. Um and a lot of those people, because of social media, I'm still in touch with today. But I was a musician, and my family experienced a divorce when I was six. So as soon as school was out, for any break, we were going out of town instead of hanging out with the homies, right? And so I spent a good deal of time in transition mode, right? Um, settling back in for the school year, reconnecting with friends that you didn't get to spend the summer with. And then trying to be friends yeah. in, the, in that way that, you know, the summer really gets you deeper in that kind of relationship, even as boys, you know, because you had the whole summer of memories and shared experience that you're talking about those first couple of weeks. And then it's like, I wasn't there. I don't know nothing about that, right. you know. Um, and so by my freshman year of high school, that became more and more of an issue as folks were preparing for high school and I was gone, right? And so that first day I walked in with the friends from my block, but then I looked around and I was by myself. Mm. Um, So I had to find my people in the band room, which is a whole other thing in high school, band geeks, Mm. you know? And there were two guys um, there that I connected to, but they weren't on my block. They weren't like the friends I had grown up with and and that was its own thing. And then, you know, even down south where we would go there for the summer, as soon as you start getting settled in and you got your friends kind of lined up and you know who's who and who you're going to go riding bikes with or whatever, it's time to go. You know, so it it became harder and harder for me to make friends. Um, And, you know, all throughout uh, primary and secondary, I was bullied, but I always had a slick tongue, too. So some of those... Imagine that... (laughs) So some of that I probably deserved, but other, you know, it, it was what it was. But I say that to say, you know, um, being the guy who was always reading books, I literally got in trouble with teachers for reading. 
and I was shunned by kids for reading. <laughs> and um, I had a teacher tell me my sophomore year of high school um, that I would have been his best student, except for the fact that I challenged him on everything he said. And all that was a reflection of was me going, being so interested that I would go read other books about whatever the topic was, and I would ask him questions about those books, and he didn't know anything about it. All he knew what was in our textbook. Yeah. And so he felt that I was challenging him and his authority. And ever since then, I mean, with... Which is what you should do well, when you're learning. But you, that's how I learn. Yeah, you should challenge. And, yeah, and, and, you know, my learning style is questioning. Right. And folks have always felt uncomfortable being questioned by me in that sense. You know, we've seen that in my business life, right? Learning the business of music and asking questions, trying to get answers so I can do whatever it is I'm trying to do or yeah, people hold that connect. information yeah, they, from they will you withhold information or whatever I mean it literally just happened in a conversation with the record company Friday yeah. two days ago yeah um and so you know I didn't have the racial challenges because I was black because I was at a black school but I did have social challenges where we had teachers tell us they got paid, or, or academic challenges, not that school was hard, but we had teachers tell us they got paid whether we learned or not. And I would argue, being someone who's a voracious reader mm -hmm. and always loved to learn but didn't like school, they never captured our attention. And then they blamed us for not wanting to learn, right? That's the environment I grew up in, the public school system in Columbus, Columbus City Schools. Mark, do you think that... Um you know, I know in the black community, a lot of folks hate to talk about this, but I mean, colorism is a thing. And I think, you know, at a later date, we can spend some time digging into that. But I mean, there are other issues that happen kind of black on black, if you will. Do you think you were, you know, because you had mentioned getting bullied for reading, you know, you were you had mentioned being a band geek. Mm -hmm. So you didn't fit like the... I wasn't a cool kid, but I was well-known. You weren't like the stereotype was, of like what we would think. the jock stereotype where I didn't fit the or you weren't, straight up geek either. But you weren't like... <laughs> Although I'm, I'm cool with that. I think for a lot of our listeners, I think maybe this is new to even know that there are black kids that are alternative or like they like anime or they like comics oh yeah, yeah you yeah. know there are black that kids that listen to classical music where i was listening to death metal and classical like classical music death metal not black music so to speak yeah yeah, yeah. shout out to that i shout mean out. Yeah, well, i was definitely that kid too yeah but it was like my being love, human but yeah it was being human and and you know having become professional as a musician at 12 i think my socialization was so different from a lot of my friends, even in the context of me not always being able to connect deeply because of the transition back and forth between my parents. Um, because I ended up hanging out with a lot of old guys, old musicians, you know, and, and that level of conversation was quite different. They didn't treat me any differently because I was 14 in the club. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and I mean... I think that's also how you chose uh, your your partners. You you chose to be around older women as well. But that's a whole <laughs> other it's a whole other thing. Um, how do you think church played into some of your socialization? And you had made a comment on drumversations last week where you said like there's privilege in prayer. So can you talk about 
first, how did uh, the church, um, how did it aid or how did it affect your socialization? How was that in terms of issues of race and, and identity going into college? Yeah. Um, and yeah. then also, what's the what's the privilege in prayer? So the privilege in prayer is something that struck me when Christians, regardless of their ethnicity, come up against something that's tough, um, that may be overwhelming, and their only response is, well, I'm going to pray about that. Mm. I've seen a lot of that on I social mean, media. N- yeah. I mean, I grew up in a household where, that. where that's what it was, Absolutely. right? And I'm not against prayer. I pray all the time. I pray unceasingly. I don't identify as Christian anymore. But Say I, that again. I don't identify as Christian anymore, but I understand the power of prayer meditation, right? But I see those activities as functions of an action, right? So before I do something, I'll settle myself through meditation, mm-hmm. right? That's why we breathe during drum versations yeah. because it's settling not just me, because I'm coming off a Zoom call for work or what right. have you, going right into this session. But it's settling the, and creating community by, through syncreti- syncretization, right? Getting everybody to breathe together and forming not only a virtual but a spiritual connection, right? And that's what meditation does. That's also what prayer does, right? Prayer and meditation to me are, are kind of the same side of the same coin because it helps you access power internally, not some extrinsic thing or a person that may or may not have existed. You know, I'm not going to debate people's belief systems, but in my belief system, you know, music is my religious practice. And in order to effectively do that and connect to what I believe to be the all, the energy that is everywhere, it's in all of us, it's in every tree, it's in every blade of grass, you know, that thing or that energy I think you can access through breathing and prayer, right? So you do believe in God? I believe in what people consider or call God, but I don't always use that word. It's a Greek word. I mean, sorry, it's, it's a German word, and it's not a word that I necessarily need. Okay. You know what I mean? It, because Put a the, pen in that. Right. We can talk about we that We can later. talk about that at a later yeah. date. That It's fascinating, really. So, so what I learned in church... Interestingly enough, in the black church tradition tradition that got me in trouble in college was a sense of spiritual grounding and foundation and the function of music. So even though I was playing in clubs, I was playing in 35 and older clubs when I was 14, 15 years old. I was playing in jazz clubs before I could drive. Uh, I also grew up playing in a church. My first church service was six. I started getting paid. I became professional as a musician in a church, right? when I was 12. Um, and so I understood music as a function of some kind of human activity. I never, ever, even playing in orchestra uh, growing up, saw music as an art form sans humanity, like mm-hmm. something art for art's sake, mm-hmm. right? So you're going to write this song, you're going to play it just because it's good. And people should listen to it just because you're playing it. That was never me. Right. So when I got to college and I started learning all this stuff and they're saying you need to know, you know, Palestrina or Bach, Beethoven, Brahms just because it's good. I'm like, tell me why. Convince me. Right. So that's one way that we got into it. And another way is, you know, 
playing improvised music and not learning about the culture that that music came from, the music most people call jazz, was not only a slap in the face, but it, it just didn't, didn't resonate because it, it brought it all down to ones and zeros. You understand the theoretical component and all of a sudden you're a jazz musician. Well, that's stupid. Hmm. I literally was in a class where that was basically what was being said. And I had just gotten off a plane playing with Ellis Marcellus. And I'm like, that's not what we did last night. <laughs> that's not how any of those cats do it. That's not how I do it. Rest in peace to Ellis. For sure. For sure. Um, and so, you know, I got into trouble in school because I had learned all of this stuff, how to be a musician, the function of music in black culture, in the black church from some fantastic musicians. Um, but then, you know, I got, I don't want to say I, I got into trouble. That's not the thing. But I, I ran up against some cultural things I had never really experienced at Ohio State. Um, the first time I was called the N-word was in second grade. Mm -hmm. This little kid, Ryan, um, he was trying to be funny with his friend Ronald. And they were up on the, on the steps. I remember it like it was yesterday. They looked at us. It was me and a few other of my friends. But he looked at me and said the N-word. And I think we beat the hell out of him. You know, but that's what you do in second grade. <laughs> I didn't have any other recourse. I didn't know how to respond to that. I'm like, you're not supposed to call me that. You thought it was funny. I need to punch you in the mouth. Right? Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely appropriate for second graders to respond to something like that. That's a, that's a verbal attack. Mm -hmm. That's violence. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when you were saying people, all, white folk in particular, don't always understand why black people respond to things the way they do. Mm -hmm. It's because they don't understand the nature of the violence that's being perpetuated against us. Mm. Right? Because it doesn't look like a slap. Doesn't mean you weren't rocked to the core by something somebody said to you or how they treated you when they said that thing to you. Yeah, like microaggressions. Well, not just microaggressions. I mean, when I you mean, see these videos. Example. Well, yeah, as an example, right? But when you see these videos now of white people speaking to black people like they're dogs mm. and black people have had enough and now they're smacking them yeah, or punching back. them in the mouth. Yeah. Do I condone that? Absolutely. Because the white person shouldn't have said it in the first place. So if you think you fly enough to come out your mouth, this is what we say in our community. This is my, you know, my mom and aunties, all them used to say, mama and them. Yeah, you're reverting like, to you know what I'm saying right now. <laughs> Seriously, mama and them be like, you know, I said, mama and them be like, yeah. you know, if you fly enough to come out your mouth like that, then you fly enough to get smacked. Because it's a respect issue, right? And I get that wider society might not condone that, but is it okay to condone what was said and the behavior toward the person? Because I was taught if you get punched, you should punch back. So if you get psychologically punched, yeah. what do you do then, right? And so those are the things that while I had that context growing up about defending ourselves and who we are, like I, I felt like I had a pretty healthy identity. I, you know, I mean, I was a kid, but I, I, I was secure in being who I was in that moment, right? But then you get to Ohio State, and I got to Ohio State, and they tried to flip everything on its head, right? As a professional, I was considered a great musician. I could read music. Uh, I could sight read it, so I didn't have to rehearse. I could just come in and sit down and play. You know, I was paid well. Uh, I was making $1,500 to $2,000 a week playing drums in high school, right? That's good. There are people who don't make that now. 
And then I get to OSU and all of a sudden this message of not being good enough kept coming up. You know, I was a drum set player who wanted to teach. And I literally had teachers come up to me and say, you're the best teacher we've ever had, but because your grades aren't high enough, we, you can't have this opportunity. I couldn't go student teach. And my grades weren't high enough because I dropped out twice early as a kid because school sucked. Like as a professional performing musician, I dealt with more competition from my teachers who saw me as a peer and not a student. And then I ran up in the different departments, the classical department, who never, ever gave me a lesson. Right. And I signed up and they never showed up to my lesson. Mm. Um, you know, the composition department got dogged for years and I have three composition degrees. Right. And they at every level told me what I couldn't do, you know, and in the education department, literally, you're a great teacher, but we can't help you, you know. And so a lot of that early on, I'll own what's mine. Right. It was hard for me at 18 to make the shift daily from a professional musician calling people by their first names as colleagues to then getting up at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, going to class and have, having them as my professors and saying doctor or professor so-and-so, right? Right. But that's the, the, that was the um, precocious nature of me being a professional early. Like, I wasn't mature enough to make that shift, and nobody sat me down and said, Lomax, <laughs> You have this gift, you have this ability, but you also need this. Let me help you put the brakes on and, and figure this thing out. Nobody did that. Not, not any of the black men who were teachers at Ohio State and nobody in my family, nobody in my community, right? And then when you hit the racist stuff and you don't have the tools to deal with that. Like I started reading early, so I had context, but I didn't have tools, right? And... I, I didn't know how to deal with that. And so I internalized some of that. Um, and that's why I dropped out twice, because I just couldn't deal with it. You know, I, it, literally, I graduated the doctorate in 2013, and it was until 2016 or 17 before I really started to feel confident in me and who I was, because that was, you know, from 1997 when I entered as a freshman to 2013 of dealing with that narrative, that constant messaging that you're not good enough, right? And it wasn't just, I, was, I mean, by grad school, I had a 4.0 all the time. I had already released several albums. I was writing for orchestras all over the world. I was doing all this kind of stuff, but they would not honor the work at school, number one. And number two, they, I have, you know, a whole list of emails <laughs> where they were telling me that I wasn't good, where they were telling me that, you know, I don't support you as a candidate for grad school, or I'm not going to write a letter of recommendation for you to get a job, or you can take this course. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to sign it because you took it out of order, even though I told you and you have the paper that I signed that said you could take it. I mean, it was all these little things that couldn't have been done just because I, I wasn't a good student or I wasn't a good musician. So the only other context in which I could frame what was going on was racism. So for, for context, you entered college as a jazz studies. Yeah, jazz studies major. And, and jazz is... Which a, is silly. And jazz is a, is a black it's music. black music, yeah. So what, what you're talking about, though, is when you transitioned into classical. classical. So, so you were in a white space. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were only four professors. They all were white. And while one was nicer than the rest, in the end, his being nice didn't help. You know what I mean? And how many other black folks in the history of OSU have your terminal degree? To my knowledge, only two other African-Americans have terminal degrees, doctorate degrees in classical composition. To my knowledge, uh, Henry Panyon, who was Stevie Wonder's um, musical director for some time and is now artistic director at an orchestra, I think in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, uh, Robert, uh, oh, what's his name? Bobby, um, Bobby Towns, I think his name is. I, I might be getting that wrong. But he's a professor at Morehouse. And then there's you. Tanner, Tanner, Bobby oh. Tanner and me. And so one happened in the 70s. The other happened in 97 or 98, and then there was me in 2013. <laughs> and what's interesting about that, and I mean, you, you've done such, I mean, your whole like musical career really has been um, a lesson in just kind of perseverance, struggle, but it's also been really historic. And yet we are in our basement doing a podcast and tomorrow you know you got to still be on that grind that that nine to five grind well that's the interesting thing about the lessons that I got from church and from the black music community growing up how they didn't square with the perception and lack of value of authentic black music in the academy and then trying to figure out what that means as a professional musician with all this education and these degrees and not able to make a living doing it. And so you work in nonprofit philanthropy, right? Which, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're great at that as well. But It's cool. It's great. It's just it's not where I saw myself being. You know, what I learned, again, as a kid was that the music had to mean something, number one. And if you weren't effectively communicating to whomever your audience was, whether you were in a church or in a club, then you weren't going to get called back. Right. So music was a function not only of spirit, but of human activity, like I said. In school, music is art and art for the sake of art. And so there's no function and there's a huge disconnect. Right. But not, that wasn't really the problem for me. The problem came when I tried to really incorporate the musical language that I grew up with. So one of my favorite composers is Bella Bartok. And the reason I like Bartok is because for some time he was, you know, a bad Beethoven copy clone, right? And you hear a lot of that in music now. People sounded like everybody else and that's supposed to be the way to go. And again, that's never what it was in the world of black music until white corporations took it over, right? Um, like Miles Davis didn't sound like Dizzy Gillespie and Chuck D didn't sound like LL Cool J. I'm just like... And, th and that is a fact. That's that is absolute fact. historically accurate. Right. It just is what it is. Um, and then when big white corporations came in and started to buy up the independent rap labels, as an example, mm -hmm. right, then the music changes because the narrative and the stories or, or not, not... Well, the narrative that is coming from the rappers themselves shifts to one that's less about authentic expression from the culture 
to what I call corporate constructs, right? And I would argue that the corporate construct is detrimental to the culture because it's now conveying a narrative that leads to the prison industrial complex, school to prison pipeline that, you know, shows all of these negative images of us. And that's essentially, I would argue, and some might push back on this, but that's essentially as a black artist, what happens when you go to college Mm -hmm. and study black art, right? You have to deny, at least in my case, and I know other composers who have had similar um, experiences um, that that are black, you have to deny the musical heritage that you come in with. So when you study white art? When you study classical music. Okay. It's taught as a European art form. Yeah. Right? Okay. And there's a lot of history of classical music not having anything to do with Europe until it went there. 7-Eleven, you know, um, Common Era, when North Africans called now Moors invaded, you know, Southern Europe, they brought instruments with them and taught them music. There was no classical music in the 8th century, you know, and all of that science about sound evolved from what they learned from Africans. Pythagoras, he wrote a lot about music, and he talked about it in terms of frequency. He learned that in ancient Kemet, Egypt. So even when Eurocentric Eurocentric ideas about art and science try to ground itself, or, or themselves, those ideas, ground themselves in Greece, mm-hmm. they're still grounding themselves in watered down African ideas. Mm. So as an African American, I have just as much right to study classical music as any European American. Maybe more. Because at its root, it came from me. Or that part of me that is African. Right? Because with slavery in my lineage, I mean, you know, a lot of stuff happened. Right, right. <laughs> and we can talk about that another time. But so those racist ideas that I'm not good enough to be a composer because I'm not European American, right? While not said expressly, were absolutely demonstrated when I would ask a question and I wouldn't get the answer, but I would talk to a white student who got an answer to the exact same question, mm-hmm. right? Why not answer my question? Um, or when it came time to get a performance and I'm a professional musician and I'm offering $1,000 to hire a string quartet and not one string quartet on campus wants to play my music. And when I ask the professors about that, they look at me like it's my fault. Nobody else had to pay their musicians. Hmm. But I did, and I still didn't even get a quartet to play it. You know what I mean? Or I turn in a piece, and it's my master's thesis piece. I had to write two theses. How many people do you know write two master's theses? You know, the first one, they didn't understand the music. I wrote a paper to explain it. They still didn't understand it. I got pissed on Friday when they told me. I took Friday and Saturday to be upset about it. Sunday, I said, I got to get over it. And Monday, I wrote a movement. Tuesday, I wrote a movement. Wednesday, I wrote a movement. Thursday, I wrote a movement. Friday morning, I edited everything and I turned it in. And they still didn't believe I could get it done that fast. You know, and it took me, what, from 2008 to 2010 to finish a master's degree that I had completed all the coursework and the thesis for in one year. Yeah. It took me 10 years to finish an undergrad because the teachers kept coming to me like, hey, you have way too many credits. 
we got to get you out of here. And I'm like, I'm taking the courses that you're telling me to take, you know. And when you go complain to Office of Diversity and Inclusion, they're saying, I hear you. But if you don't have a teacher who will back up your claims, then we can't help you. I think it, it it's really hard to kind of revisit all of this. And honestly, this is something that you and I talk about a lot because while all of this is happening, we're raising kids mm -hmm. during all of this. In white schools. In white schools. In white private schools. I think, you know, the the difference... And I, I, maybe people can tell by, by the way I'm communicating that it's still a thing, right? As much as I've healed and, and worked through, it's still a thing because it has financial implications, right? Not just student loans, but where I'm able to work or not, right? How I'm able to work or not. And institutional support that some artists get that I feel like I should get because of my accomplishments, not just the degrees, but 41 albums, 400 African Epic, and all those kinds of accomplishments. But those doors don't open still, right? right? And it, it could be because I'm still carrying a lot of that energy, and I have to work through all of that. But it also and could be... And this is a step to work through it, well, I mean, I think. Yeah, but it could also be because that very insidious uh, type of racism where, you know at least in the academy, because like I said, I experienced more of that type of racism that you experienced in college, excuse me, than I did uh, in middle school or high school, because I just didn't, that was the first white school experience. And it hit me in the face, you know? Um, and it's one of those things where they look at you and they smile, but behind your back, they don't do anything to support you. You know, and that's that kind of institutional racism. I was going to say, this is institutional racism. That, that we talk about yeah. that is hard to see because on paper, everything might look fine. This is what racism, particularly in the North, looks like. Yeah, yeah. You know, where you're not getting, um, you're not getting. It's not overt. It's not overt, you know, you're not getting loans, you know, to mortgage loans. You're not, you know, you're getting denied things. Or you're getting loans at higher interest rates. Right. Right. But you're, uh, more often than not, you're getting denied business loans or you can't get enough capital to take your business to scale. Or you apply for, in my case, um, teaching assistantships or, grad, or graduate teaching assistantships and you have more than the qualifications needed, and you just don't get it. So there, so there are a couple experiences um, that I remember as someone who was going through this with you that, you know, it's one thing for me to hear about this. It's another for me to actually see it happening in real time. Will you share the story about when we took Layla to mm -hmm. a concert? So... You know, because I dropped out twice, when I finally decided to go back, it was because I had now become a husband and a parent. And it wasn't something that we thought we wanted our child at that time to be exposed to me being on the road as long as I had been on the road. Mm -hmm. You know, having both gone through divorces, having both had um one, a single parent household as a result, we knew that that wasn't the situation we wanted our child to be raised in. And not that we would have divorced or, or that you would have been a single parent with, the, or I would have been a single parent. But as much as I was traveling to play music at that time, it would have felt that way. 
And and in effect, it would have been that way, right? Mm -hmm. So we made a choice to co-parent in the way that we felt like you should if you're married and you're going to have a family, right? It's Um, not even co-parent. It was parent. Well, (laughs) uh, yeah, but I mean that in the sense that um, to be parents together, right? Yes. Because... Which is what parenting should be. Well, that is what parenting should be. Absolutely. Um, But that meant that going to school was more difficult for both of us. Right. Because we had a family to take care of at the same time. And in undergrad, when I went back after Amir was born, you know, I had a class that started, it was a two-hour class from 7.30 to 9.30, but daycare didn't open until 8. So the earliest I could get Amira to daycare was 7.45 because you had a job at that time. Mm-hmm. And so you were you would be at work and I would be 30 to 45 minutes late based on traffic to school class every day. But I told the professor what my situation was. And I got no love for being an active father, right? White teacher didn't even hear me, right? I don't know that a black teacher would, but given everything else that I experienced at OSU, you know, the level of racism in the music department that I am now a lecturer in, you know, and I'm there in spite of those folks was absolutely real and a part of my experience. And I cannot underscore that enough, right? right. Um, and it even, you know, extends to, the, to you and the girls when I'm required to go to a concert, but I have a family. And so I'm like, okay, I have to go to this concert. Let's all of us go and hear some music, right? And it was cool. It was going well. Layla was not even one yet. Mm-mm. And she loved the music. She always was shaking and dancing, and she was enjoying herself. And in one of the breaks, uh, like silences during the music, she said, whoa. I mean, she didn't say that. She was like eight or ten months. But she loved it, and she, she made a noise because she was in it. She was enjoying it. And the dean of the School of Music made me leave with her and not return because he said it was interrupting the performance. Yeah, I remember that. I can see it like it happened yesterday. And, you know, some classical musicians or concert musicians will say one thing or another about that um, based on how they view the concert experience. But the reason why, quote unquote, art music is dead in the marketplace is because it's not open to cultivating the next generation of listeners. Yeah. You know, I've played, I play avant-garde music and we've played our brand of avant-garde for preschoolers and old people (laughs) and everybody in between, because I understand the value of art period and that anybody can enjoy it regardless of your age or even exposure to, you know, the sounds that we are making. And the fact that, not only were we kicked out of the concert, but it wasn't even a polite way in which we were no, spoken it to. No, wasn't. it wasn't. Um, it, it was a scolding. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he blamed me for ruining a recording. And I'm like, dude, I pay for my own recordings. If this composer can't get a recording, and it was a small group, it was like two musicians. If the composer can't get that recorded in a more pristine environment, he can't use this either. Oh, she ain't never had a, the, uh, the ability to make good recordings. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it was like all of that running through my mind 
as this white man is looking at me as if I'm scum of the earth because I brought my child to a concert. You know, and I, you know, I, I'm not asking, again, just like you weren't, for any kind of sympathy. Of, I mean, this, it, it is what it is. But the fact remains that these experiences are scarring. They cause trauma. And I'm 100% certain that if I had been white in any of these cases, the situation would have been different. We might have been asked to leave, maybe, if I was white. We would not have been told to leave. I've never ever, in the 16 years I was a student at Ohio State, seen a white person get told to do anything like that during a concert. And I went to a lot of concerts. Yeah, I mean, and I've seen a it, lot of white folk right. be disruptive. It was like you know. literally they came over and in front of everyone asked us to leave. It was it was horrible. Yeah, but the, I mean, and things like that have happened, you know, in even more mundane situations, like not let me into a room. Or like I couldn't get keys to the the uh, a room that I needed to access. You know, I had all my ID. All the other students in the studio had keys, but I couldn't get keys. So that's why I had to take out a little more in student loans to get the equipment, so I could have it in my home. That's how we started building the studio, because I couldn't get into the studio on campus that I was supposed to be able to access because I was a student. What would you, if you could tell? somebody like in your position so say there's a young or maybe not young maybe there's an african-american composer that chooses to attend the ohio state university what would some of your what would some of your um advice be if they were running up against some of these same kinds of issues I didn't solve it, so I, I can't help somebody solve that. You know, my issues were what they were, and it wasn't until I was completely done with everything and I had all, the doc all of the documentation to make the case that I sought help in ways that I could get it, right? Because what I was told in the process, what I was told was that if I didn't have a teacher, like a professor, supporting me, then not only was it my word against the professor's word, it could, I could just be a disgruntled student, period. You know, But when I was at the end of everything, I had finished everything. And I had the grades and I had everything, you know, and it was documented that it was done. I could then go to folks to get something um, moving toward my graduation. And if I wasn't able to do that, I wouldn't be Dr. Lomax now. And nobody should have to wait all of that time to make the case that they're being discriminated against yeah. in whatever way that discrimination looks like, right? But what I will say in general to a composer um, who identifies as black or a composer of color, African-American, um, own and control your product. Save your money and make your own recordings. Don't wait for white companies to value your work. If you know it's good, then invest in yourself, you know. And if you're having problems at school, I, well, what I do tell young musicians at school, take two sets of notes. It doesn't deal with the cultural issues. It doesn't deal with the, the microaggressions, the racism. But what it does is helps them understand that who you are as a young black person in the academy is not gonna be valued in most cases. I know a lot of people who have studied classical music in 
you know, pr uh, predominantly white institutions. And very few of them have said to me, hey, I had a great time. Some have, but it's a few. It's few compared to the numbers of people that I've t spoken to. So take two sets of notes. Take the stuff you want to know and need to know for what it is you think you want to do and take the notes for the things that you need to pass the class because those often are mutually exclusive. Um, and, and cover, cross your T's and, and dot your I's. Make sure everything is like pristinely documented. Yeah. Keep all of the emails, all of the communication because you never know when you'll need to point to that communication as a reference to why you feel like you're being discriminated against. Um, and, and they will act like it is something that you feel, but it's something that you know, right? What do you want our listeners to know? That even in the best cases, black people are dealing with racism in the most subtle ways possible, right? Having someone like me who could be considered a magic Negro in the sense that I do a lot of things in music. I do a lot of things well because I've worked to be able to do those things well. Right. It's not a natural. I mean, it might, I might be naturally gifted on the drums. I've been playing since I was two, but I still had to practice. I still hit, had to hit that 10,000 hour mark to get to mastery. And I still had to focus on craft as a composer. And I still had to learn various styles. I had to learn white music and everybody else's music. Right. I couldn't just skate coast. So, you know, a lot of folks think that black people in particular positions, even those who might be assimilationists. They're trying to be mm -hmm. aligned with values so white folk don't see them as different. Mm -hmm. You know, it, there's a cost for success. There's a cost to be at the table. And often it's the cost of a significant portion of our identity, our most authentic selves, right? When you are in a, sitting across from table, the table from a black person in a professional space, you might just be speaking to half a person mm. in the sense that who they are fully is often not welcome in those spaces. I know that's a fact because that's not only been my experience, that is the black experience in America. You know, we've only been welcomed in white spaces if we're exceptionally talented. It's like Chris Rock says, he's, you know, a world renowned comedian, movie star, and his neighbor is a dentist, right? So he had to be exceptional as a black man to live in his neighborhood, and the white man next door just had to be a dentist. And I say that saying that there's no guarantee that if Chris Rock had become a dentist, he would be able to live there. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's the thing that we have to deal with. It's not always about how good you are. A lot of times it's about how great you are to get into certain spaces. And white folk don't have to deal with that as, as, in the same way that we do, you know. Um, I also want folks to know that um, we know this. You don't know it. And so, you know, when you're act, actively engaging, you know, a lot of times the solutions or, or the ideas that come out, it's like we haven't tried them. Like, yeah, we've been there, done that. Like, yeah, I get it. Right. Yeah. We've been here before, you know. We've so, tried all we've tried. those things. So did you talk to this person yeah, at Ohio we've, we've State? Done yeah, that. <laughs> I, yeah, I talked to that. You know, did you? Oh, I just can't. So, so we don't need you to say, I can't believe that that would happen. Or I don't even need you to apologize. Right. 
what black people need is action moving forward, right? Let's understand the context of today, which is the whole history of America in the 401 years of history, uh, of, of slave-related history. Understand that context, and then let's move forward to create an environment across class strata, across ethnic strata, across gender strata, across all of these things that we use to divide us, mm -hmm. to bring us together. Equitable policy and practices from maybe a new constitutional convention to look at the constitution specifically with a race and equity lens, right? To, to add things that make it more inclusive and take out the things like the clause in the 13th amendment that makes it exclusionary, right? So we don't need boycotts of Aunt Jemima or Aunt Jemima getting, <laughs> you know, a perm and we don't need that and we don't need black lives matter written in front of trump tower although that's hilarious it is hilarious you know, but those like i said on social media a couple of weeks ago you know those kinds of activities these these platitudes these tearing down or bringing down of statues these actions to say black lives matter without making that meaningful is white supremacy racism trying to figure out what the price is for returning to normal Mm. Right. So I made a corporate statement to let you know I got your back. I want your money. I don't believe in these things. We wrote Black Lives Matter on the street. <laughs> right. And we brought down those Confederate statues. You good? We good? OK. But what I didn't do as white society is change policies, proce procedures to reflect equity and inclusion. Equity, not equality. Right. Because if I have the same thing that a white counterpart has, it's actually more valuable in the hands of that white counterpart because of the way racist American culture sees the white counterpart as opposed to the way it sees me. So those are the kinds of conversations we need to be having if people are really interested in, you know, not just addressing and engaging, but solving the problem of race, right? It really is a pathology. And we all who have been raised in this American context suffer to some extent or another from white, racist, American pathological mindsets because slavery is that kind of a disease. It's a mental health disorder. Understanding that, we all can, can cure ourselves from it by being more humane, period, point blank, across the board. And it's not just how we treat each other in interpersonal relationships, it's how we treat each other at the systemic and institutional level too. I wanna ask one more question before we end today. Um, you had also said that um, last week during drum conversations, you said you're mad daily. Absolutely. Tell James Baldwin said to be black and conscious in America is to be angry all the time. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm mad about a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm mad that we're still having these conversations about race, equity, and inclusion. I'm mad that black women don't get as much as white women in terms of their paycheck, but white women are talking about pay equity without being intersectional and inclusive 
of black women. I'm mad that trans people are treated poorly by everybody. I'm mad that as a black man, I feel like I have to bring myself down a couple of notches in order to make the white people I work with feel comfortable. I'm mad that I can be one of the best artists at what I do and I can't make a living at it. And it's not just because it's art, <laughs> right? There are artists subjective, but there are a lot of people who have not done what my creative partners and I have accomplished and they're doing much better than us yeah. in terms of opportunities. You know, all of those things, you know, and some people might say, well, that sounds entitled because, well, I deserve to be entitled because I've done the work. Ashe. Right. It's like saying you built a house and you can't live in it. Well, that's not entitlement. You know, if you built your house, you should be able to live in your house. And the way America works right now, people who come from poverty like me, Lyndon, right? I wasn't the poorest, but I, I ain't have no money just because we often don't have the financial wherewithal to invest in the work to get it to where it needs to be. Right. And most folks ain't opening doors just because. So everything that I've accomplished, I've had to accomplish like just tooth and nail. Yeah. You know, we, it has been we scrap for everything. Yeah. You know, and there, there's a lot that can be said for that in terms of being proud of the work. But that doesn't make you feel good. And so all of that pisses me off. I'm pissed. That our daughters, excuse me, that our daughters will likely still be having these conversations when they're our age. And I'm pissed that white America still is, is as woke as some of them want to be, still don't understand the why. And I'm, I'm pissed that a lot of black America don't understand the why. And that ignorance from both of those groups of people is not always their fault, but there is something called Google. And all we have to do if we really want to know is use the, the Google, you know, but it's not taught in school. It's not taught in most homes. And so we all lack context for why things are the way they are. But I think that that's purposeful. The powers that be don't want us to know. You know, there's all kind of research and information that shows how poor white people and poor black people have been divided so they can be conquered. Right. And it's time for all of us to wake up to those things and understand that all of these isms, racism, sexism, uh, ageism, all the classism, all those isms are just branches on the same tree. That's right. And once we realize that, we'll realize that we're actually stronger together and we won't allow these uh, wealthy elite power brokers. And they don't even have power. They have authority. Power is a whole different thing. We can talk about that another time. But they keep us divided. And when we stand together, there's nothing else that they can do. I should. I should. Thanks, Mark. Peace. Peace.